The Us Against Alzheimer's 2022 National Summit covers the latest scientific developments in prevention, early detection, and treatment, while focusing on health equity and the need for a healthcare system that works for everyone. The video highlights of this year's summit also features in-depth conversations with Senator Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, and Representative Anna Eshoo, Democrat from California, about Congress's role in the fight to end Alzheimer's. To watch, go to usa2summit.org. Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. And this is part two of our conversation on the brain-sleep connection with Dr. Eric St. Louis, director of the Center for Sleep Medicine and director of the Mayo Sleep Behavior, a neurophysiology research laboratory at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Before delving into the pros and cons of sleep aids and what to expect at a sleep clinic, I asked him what happens to the circadian rhythms of those with dementia as the disease progresses. As a 24-year caregiver, I had two loved ones and they were up, you know, night was day. What's going on there? There is overall with aging a relative advance of our circadian sleep patterns, meaning specifically we might have a change in our sleep timing whereby we tend to fall asleep a little bit earlier and to awaken a bit earlier. And in extreme cases, this can become a defined sleep disorder, something we call advanced sleep phase syndrome, where patients are seeking to go to bed around 5 or 6 p.m. at night and awaken by 1, 2, 3 in the morning. And in such cases, some of the circadian interventions that we use for circadian sleep-wake rhythm disorders can help strategically timed bright light therapy and or the use of strategically timed melatonin can be helps to this. But in advanced cases of dementia in particular, we do see an irregularity in the sleep-wake rhythms, just as you described. And there is, in fact, a fairly common disorder called irregular sleep-wake rhythm disorder that is just that, a really falling apart of the normal sleep-wake rhythm so that the sleep becomes much less consolidated. Patients have trouble both initiating and maintaining sleep during the night and are much more prone to have intrusions of sleep during the normal daytime hours. So the sleep-wake rhythms can become a bit of a jumbled mess. And there again, a body of research has suggested that certain environmental influences can serve to worsen this, particularly elderly who become physically impaired, which might also be accelerated in patients with neurodegenerative disease, especially those who are in residential care facilities. If they're not regularly obtaining enough daytime activity or daytime light exposure, these are influences that we think can really help such individuals to better consolidate their sleep at night and to escape from this rather terrible erratic sleep-wake rhythm disorder. Doctor, the proverbial shortcut to a good sleep for millions of people are sleep aids. How do you balance the need for sleep with the use of sleep aids, and do they make you unconscious or do they improve the quality of sleep? A variety of sleep aids are available, which is fortunate, but the sleep aids do come with some harms or cautions that we need to be aware of with chronic use. So 
Generally, the pendulum has swung back and forth over the years for the management of chronic sleep disturbance and chronic insomnia in particular between predominantly behavioral strategies. And here, there are diversity of interventions known as cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that can really help. The American College of Physicians has suggested that behavioral interventions really be tried first and foremost and most often for patients with chronic insomnia. It's also been found that our prescription hypnotic medicines in those with chronic insomnia are simply just less effective. While hypnotics may be quite efficacious for short-term use, in most cases they end up falling short in both efficacy and potential safety or tolerability issues for chronic use. That said, there are still many useful hypnotic medications and sleep-promoting medications that can be useful particularly some of the specific medications known as the Z drugs, those being Zolpidem, Zopaclone, and Zaloplon. These are medications that are considered non-benzodiazepine, benzodiazepine receptor agonists, which is a mouthful. But these medications are probably the most specific for sleep promotion. Of course, there are others, some of the traditional and often cheaper agents, sedating antidepressants such as trazodone. Remeron is still used by some, although less studied. And even some of the over-the-counter agents such as antihistamine medications like Benadryl can still on some occasions be useful for short-term use. There's been an exciting new body of research showing that hypocretin antagonist medications, which really combat the wake-promoting side of the neurochemical axis for sleep, might also be safe and effective medications for use, particularly in older individuals. There are cases where when cognitive behavioral therapy interventions fall short, we can consider with careful supervision selection of prescribed hypnotics, sometimes even for chronic use if the patient tolerates this well. I do want to emphasize that one of the great cautions with use of these medications has been fall risk, which has particularly been seen with the Z drug class medications, especially Zolpidem. And the Z drugs, especially Zolpidem, also seem to promote potentially dangerous effects such as sleepwalking or even enuresis or bedwetting. So they should be used with caution and reserve for cases that are not responding to usual cognitive or behavioral therapy interventions. Dr. St. Louis, earlier you walked us through the science behind the brain-sleep connection. But if I come to you as a patient, what information do you want to know about my sleep patterns to figure out whether I have a problem? can be very helpful to have, if not a formal sleep diary, just being prepared to answer some detailed questions about the average night of sleep, particularly sleep-wake habits that surround the bedtime, what the usual bedtime is, how long it may take to initiate sleep or fall asleep once the lights are turned off, whether there are any distracting elements in the bedroom environment, such as TVs or radios, personal digital devices or iPads, or pets in bed, or a snoring spouse or a spouse that's exhibiting abnormal sleep behaviors all can be environmental sleep disturbance sources. And then how long the usual sleep period lasts, whether there are arousals or awakenings at night that contribute to the average night of sleep having sleep disturbance. And then importantly in the morning hours, how one feels, whether one feels refreshed or not by the night's sleep. 
whether there are any cardinal symptoms of sleep disturbance through the night, such as morning headache, dry mouth, or sore throat that might suggest sleep apnea symptoms, and whether or not one needs an alarm to awaken in the morning or recurrently must hit the snooze button due to the sense that they're still needing more sleep and more time in bed. So those are some of the things that are helpful. Also, throughout the daytime, then, how well the person is able to remain awake and whether they tend to doze or not off inadvertently during usual type of sedentary activities during the day, such as sitting, reading, watching television, or while driving. So, doctor, there are two elements you've described, a sleeping partner and pets in bed. Now, many people won't give up pets in bed, (laughs) or probably before they do a sleeping partner, so... (laughs) Tell us how we get around it and why is it an issue? Evidence on this is mixed, and I've been less preachy about the pets in bed issue since one of our colleagues at Mayo Clinic Arizona, Lois Cron, and colleagues published a very useful study showing that maybe pets in bed aren't so bad and are a mutual comfort to both the pet and the animal-loving owner. But in general, we do think that pets or disturbing behaviors such as snoring in the spouse might lead to just natural environmental sleep disturbance that promotes arousal from sleep and leads to less restful sleep for the patient. So in general, I think still adhering to that line of advice can be useful, but sometimes digging a little deeper and finding out if the pet, usually a dog, but sometimes a cat is a sound sleeper and not disturbing the patient or pet owner, I think it can be okay. On the other hand, if it's a cat climbing all over your head and the rest of your body or a dog scratching at you or whining to go out repeatedly through the night, those can be problems. Thank you for the answer. (laughs) Can you reprogram a night owl or someone who wakes at 3 a.m. and can't get back to sleep? And if so, how? Now we're looking for strategies, doctor. For me, with an older adult, this often starts with deeper questioning about are there sources that promote arousal? And really, the number one factor, numbers one and two, I should mention, the factors that come into my office regularly are chronic insomnia issues and or sleep disordered breathing, such as sleep apnea. And these two often come together as uh, comorbid sleep conditions. So for me, it starts with taking a deeper history and seeing if we can nail down, is there a likely contributing cause to this or not? The number one issue there being sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea. So Increasingly, there, in terms of our diagnostic approach to sleep apnea, our traditional model has been an in-lab polysomnogram or sleep study. But now, if it seems that the history and or screening diagnostics such as portable oximetry studies are highly suggestive of significant sleep apnea, we can proceed directly to a home sleep apnea test. And there are now very convenient versions of this, some that can even be mailed out to the patient in a little form of a disposable test kit that can provide us a pretty quick answer on this and get the patient engaged in treatment. Is there a way for each of us to determine our own natural circadian rhythm? This is actually a space where the personable wearables can be helpful just in tracking one's own average sleep-wake habits. So it starts there with either measured sleep-wake habits or keeping a sleep diary with some detail about the average bed and rise times. And again, any sleep intrusions that may figure into that. There are some more research-grade type things that I won't get too deep into, but things like measuring salivary melatonin levels and so forth that are still more reserved for the realm of research at this time unless they're ordered or directed by a sleep physician. 
How about limitations when it comes to alcohol and caffeine as it relates to sleep? When there particularly is chronic insomnia issue or struggle, trouble particularly falling or staying asleep, and I think those are often also starting points. We start with personal habits and personal sleep-wake schedules to see if we can aid with some coaching there. And in general, use of caffeine too late in the day or even excessive use. I struggle a bit to define what is excess, and I guess my practical wisdom on this is any use that's more than the doctor, his or herself, could be problematic. Maybe that's a bad standard, but I think one or two cups of coffee in the morning is probably perfectly acceptable. Limiting any use after about the noon hour is to be advised. And again, enjoying one or maybe even cautiously a second alcoholic beverage, a regular or slightly irregular basis can be okay. But when there's sleep disturbance, we'll try to coach on changing those habits and trying to eliminate it to see if this is a helpful factor. You look at new mothers, doctors, nurses, health workers, caregivers, we're forced into intermittent sleep that can stretch over years of a loved one's illness. What is your advice to us? I think that can be particularly difficult for the caregiver who's in that role chronically. And I think just trying to attend to one's own personal health as best one can. Studies have shown that caregivers have greatly disturbed sleep just because of that environmental disturbance responsibility and the stress of having to provide that care to a loved one. But again, looking internally to see if one's own sleep-wake schedule is too deranged, trying to seek some respite care, at least on a regular basis, so that one can attend to one's own sleep need is important. Also trying to self-monitor for any symptoms of a sleep disorder, particularly chronic insomnia and or sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea, to name just two, would be important and to seek care for those conditions if any cardinal symptoms of these disorders are present. Now, you're the expert, so do you practice what you preach and what are your strategies for winding down at night? I'm not sure I'm the best model, frankly. If you ask my research assistants or colleagues when they get emails from me, I'm a bit of a self-perpetuating night owl. I don't necessarily always practice what I preach, but I have, particularly as I get older, been trying to do better. And I do think trying to curtail one's device habits is one of the great challenges in our modern society. So just trying to knock off the laptop, the iPhone, the iPad, any of those stimulating sources that both get mental activity flowing as well as serve as a source of light, those can be particularly destructive, I think, and lead to greater misbehavior both on the part of the physician and some of our patients. So those, I think, are good starting points both for myself and the greater public. Thank you so much. Our guest today has been Dr. Eric St. Louis, co-director of the Center for Sleep Medicine and director of the Mayo Sleep Behavior and Neurophysiology Research Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. That's it for this edition. I'm Meryl Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Us Against Alzheimer's is partnering with the American Academy of Lifestyle Medicine to create Brain Health Academy, a series of free evidence-based courses to equip healthcare and wellness providers with the knowledge and resources to help people reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. To learn more, go to usagainstalzheimers.org and click on Brain Health Academy. 
Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel and from our corporate sponsors, Biogen, Esai, and Eli Lilly. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.